You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. It's always a privilege to open God's Word with you. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. Uh, I think it's pretty fair to say that almost everybody loves a good story. We read stories to kids before they go to bed. When we meet new people, we often will tell stories about where we're from and significant events in our own lives as a way of getting to know each other. When we spend time with family or friends, we regularly tell each other stories. And in fact, we will often retell old stories as a way of deepening our bond with friends and family. At our very core, I would say we are storied beings. But have you ever stopped to wonder, why did God make us that way? I think one of the primary reasons that God made us that way is that God has a story that he's working out in human history. That story begins in Genesis and runs all the way through Revelation. And at numerous places in the Bible, there are these brief summaries of that story to help us make sure we are grasping the big picture of what God is doing. It's almost like when you're watching your favorite television show, and at the beginning of each episode, they'll say, previously on, and then they remind you, remember, these are the big events, the key characters, the key themes that are coming out. In essence, what we find in this passage this morning in Nehemiah chapter 9 is sort of a previously in the story of the Bible kind of moment that we're having uh, a chance to look at today. Now, as we walk through this passage, I want you to keep in mind two key questions. So I want these in the back of our minds as we're working through Nehemiah chapter 9. Here's the first key question. Why should we, as God's people, regularly retell the story of God? That's the first one. And then the second one is, how does retelling the story of God help us live the Christian life? So, Why should we regularly retell the story of God as God's people? And then second, how does that help us live the Christian life? Now, as we get ready to read through Nehemiah chapter 9, I just want to give us a brief refresher on kind of where we've been so far in Nehemiah. So Nehemiah has been sent back to Jerusalem to help rebuild the wall in the face of remarkable opposition. And God miraculously uses Nehemiah and the people to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem to help protect God's people. And then we saw in chapter 8 that they gathered together to celebrate a couple of different festivals, the festival of trumpets and the festival of booths. And so we walked through chapter 8 last week. The events of chapter 9 take place two days later, after the end of chapter 8. So that's sort of setting the stage for us. So I want you to follow along now as I read... Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. 
For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunny, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So the Jews begin by separating themselves from the foreigners among them. And I need to stress that this is not not really an ethnic issue. This is a worship issue. You see, the problem with these foreigners is that they were worshiping other gods or that they worshipped Yahweh plus other gods. And so the issue in in view here is separating themselves from people who were worshipping other gods. And you think, well, how big of a deal is that? Well, it was such a big deal that one of the reasons God sent Israel into exile in the first place was that they were worshipping other gods. And so as a way of showing their devotion and their loyalty to the Lord, they are separating themselves from people worshiping other gods. Now, before we look at what they did when they gathered together for worship, I want to point out how they approached worship with humility. Did you notice this? They fasted, which is really just a simple way of denying yourself the basic physical necessity of food to intensify our desire for God and the spiritual nourishment that only he can give us. They wore sackcloth and put dirt on their heads as a visible representation of their brokenness and their sorrow over sin. They knew they were approaching a holy God and that in comparison to him, they were sinful, rebellious, and broken people. Friends, is that how you approach God? With humility? Do you realize on our own merits, we have absolutely no business approaching a holy God? Have you noticed that when you're reading through the Bible and you come across these places where God visibly appears to people, do you notice what they do? They fall flat on their faces and think, it's over. It's done because they realize they are confronted with a pure and holy God and they know I'm not pure. I'm not holy. So when we gather together to worship Jesus, there should be a a weightiness, a, a sobriety that causes us to approach God humbly because we recognize both our unworthiness and his worthiness. So now as Nehemiah tells the story, he draws our attention to two specific acts of worship. The first is confession of sin. Now, confession is simply agreeing with God about the true nature of something, acknowledging that he is right. And I think that most of us can find this challenging, can find this difficult. We don't like to admit that we're in the wrong. And that we've failed. And that we've disobeyed. We often feel guilt and shame 
We're embarrassed that we don't measure up to God's standards or even our own standards. I think another reason we avoid confessing sin to God is that we we think he's going to blast us. I think all of us have probably had this kind of experience where we've done something wrong and we've gone to a parent, a boss, a friend, a coach, a teacher, someone, and acknowledged, yeah, I messed up, I did this. And their response was to absolutely lay into us. Maybe they even said things like, how could you be so stupid to do something like that? You're an idiot. I can't believe that you would do that. What the heck were you thinking? We've all probably had some kind of experience like that. And suddenly what we tend to do is we tend to to transfer that onto God and we think, if I approach God and confess my sin, he is just waiting to lay into us and let us have. Friends, that's not what the Bible says. Nothing could be further from the truth. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. We don't have time to read read it now. I just want you to look it up later. But in Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, the author tells us that we have Jesus as our great high priest. And that we should approach God with confidence in our time of need, to receive mercy and grace. Instead of blasting us, God says, would you please come here and tell me, confess to me, because I already know what you've done. When we confess our sins to God, he delights to forgive us. Stop to think about that for a minute. It's not begrudging. It's not, well... Fine, whatever, it's fine, it's no big deal. God delights to forgive. Wrap your minds around that. He says, I love you and I forgive you. That's mind-blowing that that's who God is. So confession of sin is the first act of worship that Nehemiah points out. The second is reading Scripture. So in verses 6 through 37, what we have is a kind of a summary of the different passages that they read on that day. And did you notice that they did this for nearly three hours? So I figured you wouldn't mind if I preached for a good hour and a half. I'll just cut it in half, and we'll just go an hour and a half this morning. So I hope that's okay with the children's workers over there, and I'll repent later. No, um, I'm not going to go that long. But... Reading the Bible and confessing sin. That's not just the pattern we see here in Nehemiah 9. It's a pattern that is vital for the Christian life. As we read the Bible, God shows us our sin. And as we see our sin, we should confess it to God, agreeing with him that he is right and we are wrong. We should also confess, by the way, that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for that sin, and that God forgives us because of what he has done for us. We should ask God to turn our hearts away from that sin and towards greater faith and trust and obedience. And we should ask God to empower us to obey by his spirit. That is what it means to walk in repentance and faith. 
That's the basic pattern of the Christian life. Repentance and faith. It's the daily rhythm of walking with Jesus. So now this section ends with the Levites calling the people to bless the glorious name of the Lord. And in most of our English Bibles, you'll find that that word Lord is in all capital letters. Now, when you see that in your Bible, when the word Lord is in all capital letters or even the word God is in all capital letters like that, what that's telling you is that it's translating the divine name Yahweh. That was the name that God told Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 15, was his special memorial name by which he was to be remembered forever. And we will see the importance of this name as we work our way through verses 6 through 37. So keep your eyes out for that particular feature. All right, with all of that introduction in place now, we're ready to work our way through retelling the story. Let's begin by reading verses 6 through 8, which will take us from creation to God's covenant with Abraham. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. So we see that they start off by acknowledging Yahweh is both the creator and the sustainer of everything that exists. And that this same Yahweh is the one who made a promise to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, describes that first promise. And then in Genesis 15, and then again in Genesis 17, God ratifies that promise into a covenant that he makes with Abraham. And we can really summarize the basic elements of that covenant into three words. Ready for this? The first is people. God promised to multiply Abraham and his descendants more than the stars of heaven and make them into a mighty nation. So people. Second, place. God promised to give Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan for them to live in. And then third, presence. God promised to be with Abraham and his descendants as they went about the land. Now, if you stop to think about it, in essence, what God is promising is to restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden. God made people, Adam and Eve, and commanded them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God gave them a place, the Garden of Eden, and commanded them to rule over and subdue it. God gave them his presence. He walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden. And all of that was undermined when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. 
So what we're seeing here is that God's promise to Abraham was the means by which he was going to fix what Adam and Eve broke. So that brings us to verses 9 through 15. And here we're going to move from slavery to Mount Sinai. Nehemiah 9, verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted ignorantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Notice in verse 10, the emphasis on God doing all of this to make a name for himself. Indeed, repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, you see these examples of God being identified as Yahweh, who brought his people out of the land of Egypt. That almost became his extended name. And so God is making a name for himself through all that he is doing. God was with his people. He guides them by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And then he appears to them at Mount Sinai. He gave them his law to explain what does it look like to live as the people of God in a fallen and broken world. And he even provided food and water for them in the wilderness. So at this point, everything seems fine. But in verses 16 through 23, we're going to move from disobedience to the desert. Pick you up in verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. And they lacked nothing, 
Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. Now, in this section, we get our first glimpse of Israel's failure. Instead of humbly submitting to Yahweh and his laws, they were stiff-necked and rebellious. Exodus 32 through 34 tells the story of how the people worshipped a golden calf while Moses was up on the mountain meeting with God. So Moses begs God to show them mercy and also to show him his glory. And so you get this beautiful passage in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. Write down the reference, look it up later, I'll read it to you now. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. God passes in front of Moses. Now this is God showing Moses his glory, and what does he do? He proclaims his name. The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That, in a nutshell, is who God is, and that is such incredibly good. At the very core of God's being, he is merciful and gracious. He overflows. He's like a fountain just bubbling over with steadfast love and faithfulness to his promises. He forgives sin, and yet he does it without compromising his justice. So instead of wiping the people out, he shows mercy. So by his spirit, he leads them in the wilderness and provides for them for 40 years. He defeats their enemies and multiplies them into a mighty nation just as he had promised. Now look with me at verses 24 and 25. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities in a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. So when the people entered the promised land, they inherited even more than they could have imagined. In fact, there was so much abundance, it was overwhelming. And that is ultimately what led to their downfall. As we'll see in verses 26 through 31. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. And rebelled against you. 
and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously. And did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, You gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Israel's history is marked by this vicious cycle of rebelling against the Lord and the Lord handing them over to, the, to their enemies. The people would cry out for deliverance. God would raise up a judge or a king to save them. And then they would have rest. But then they'd rebel again and the cycle would just repeat over and over. They spiraled downward and downward to the point where it just kept getting worse and worse. And yet all throughout this section, did you hear the constant refrain of God's? mercy, warning them about the judgment coming, calling them to repent and come back. He bore with them for centuries, hundreds upon hundreds of years, calling out to them to turn back because he's a God who is merciful and gracious. And even when they refused, he did not abandon them, but he did send them off into exile. Now, to this point in the passage, the whole focus has been on Israel's past. When we get to verse 32, we see the people shift to their current situation in Nehemiah's day. So, join with me in verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments. 
and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. So despite being back in the land, their reality is so far short of what God had promised. Both before and during the exile, God had promised a temple that would dwarf Solomon's temple. Instead, their current one is a fraction of the size. God had promised a renewed people who would obey by the heart-level obedience empowered by their spirit. They would obey God's Torah. And yet, what have we seen even here in the book of Nehemiah? The people are marked by disobedience and discouragement. God had promised that he would give them turf that extended well beyond the boundaries of even David or Solomon's kingdom. And instead, the land that they had, that they were living in, was a small region around the city of Jerusalem. God had also promised that he would put a descendant of David on the throne to rule over them in righteousness. And instead, they live under the rule of foreign kings. Surely this can't be it, right? There has to be more. God had promised so much more. And did you notice the, the, the passage just kind of ends on this thud? Did you notice that? We are in great distress. Boom. There's got to be more, right? No wonder they're in great distress. Because they're waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. So now that we've worked our way through the story, let's revisit our opening questions of why should we as God's people retell the story of God? I think the simple answer is we retell the story of God to remind us of his covenant faithfulness despite our sin. We gather to retell the story of God to remind ourselves of his faithfulness despite our sin. And so how does this help us live the Christian life? How does this help us live as faithful followers of Jesus? I think there are at least three ways that it helps. First, retelling the story roots us in the past. Retelling the story roots us in the past. The Christian life is way bigger than our individual relationship with God. It's way bigger than our involvement with a particular local church. It's way bigger than what God is doing right now in our community or our country or even in our world. We as believers are part of this same story that the people in Nehemiah's day gathered to tell. 
We are part of the true story of the world. A story that God wrote from before the foundation of the world. When we read the Bible, we're not simply reading the story of the Israelites or of the early church. We are reading our story. This is who we are. These are our people. Second, retelling the story orients us in the present. We live in a world with so many competing narratives. Narratives about truth, about right and wrong, about what the good life looks like, where we find meaning and satisfaction. From politics to entertainment to social media, we are bombarded with alternative stories. Stories that tell us, if you live this way or do this, you will find satisfaction. You will find meaning. You will find purpose. Friends, that's fake news. That's the definition of fake news. That's what Satan traffics in is fake news. And when we understand and retell the story, we are reminding ourselves, we are orienting ourselves to what is true and what is good and what is right. We are tempted to set our priorities and our values based on the false narratives that we are bombarded by. So it is vital that we know the true story of the world that we are a part of. So we are oriented to know how we should live. That we should live as citizens of God's kingdom and not primarily of any earthly kingdom. Our values and our priorities and our agendas are not set by the fake news of this world, but by what God says in his word. The third way that retelling the story helps us as, uh, to live out the Christian life is that retelling the story stirs in us hope for the future. You see, even in their distress, the people in Nehemiah's day knew the story's not over. They knew they needed someone to keep the covenant requirements that they had failed to keep. They knew that God was sending a serpent crusher, a descendant of Abraham, a son of David, who would obey where Adam and Israel and every single human being had ever failed. So imagine 400 years later when a man named John begins baptizing people in the Judean wilderness and preaching the Messiah is coming. Those hopes began to stir. And then those hopes intensify when John baptizes a guy named Jesus. And when he goes under the waters, the heavens open and a dove descends. The Holy Spirit descends upon this man named Jesus. And this booming voice from heaven declares, This is my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. And then what happens? Jesus goes out into the wilderness. Just like Israel before Him. He is going out in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. But unlike Israel, un like Israel, Jesus obeys in the face of temptation from Satan. Unlike Adam before him, Jesus defeats Satan and makes it clear that the serpent crusher 
And the true son of God is here. And when he's finished defeating Satan in the wilderness, what does he do? He goes back into the land and he begins to multiply. He's fruitful as he's calling disciples and gathering followers. He begins conquering the spiritual forces of darkness that kept people in slavery. He begins healing people of their diseases as a sign that the promised new creation is breaking into this fallen world. And most importantly, he begins preaching the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand and people should repent of their sins and trust in Jesus the king. But it's not enough. You see, it's not enough for Jesus just to obey where we had failed, where Adam had failed, where Israel had failed. We need someone to pay for the sins of his people. He needs to suffer the punishment that you and I and all of God's people deserved for their sins. In other words, like Adam before him, like Israel before him, he needs to go into exile, away from the presence of the Father, and suffer God's wrath and righteous anger towards sin. So on the cross, what Jesus does is he drinks the cup of wrath that you and I deserved for our sins. He drinks it to the bottom, and he's forsaken by God. On our, on our behalf. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did that for us. And then he breathed his last breath, dying as the suffering servant for the sins of his rebellious people. But friends, death was not the final word. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the new Adam who instead of bringing sin and death into the world brings righteousness and life. He pours out his very own spirit to live inside of his people, making us into a temple where he dwells. He writes his Torah onto our hearts and empowers us to obey. He conquers the turf of our human hearts and rules over us in that way in anticipation of the day when he will conquer all of creation. And he also ascended to heaven where he sits on the throne ruling over us. And as if that wasn't enough, Jesus calls us as his people to take the good news about him and his kingdom to the ends of the earth and empowered by his spirit. Our role in the story is to live as citizens of God's kingdom here in this broken and sin-saturated world. Faithfully living as disciples of Jesus, obeying everything that he has commanded. Friends, that's where we find ourselves in the story today. That's our place in this grand narrative that stretches from Genesis to Revelation. But the good news is the story isn't over. You see, just like the people in Nehemiah's day, we are awaiting the next chapter in the story. But for us, it's the final chapter. Because Jesus promised that he would one day come back for his people. And he would finish and complete and consummate all of his promises in a new heaven and a new earth. Where there is no more sin, no more sickness, no more Satan. And God will dwell with us in a transformed creation where we will see his 
face and be with him forever. That is our hope. And that is what God produces in us as individuals and as a body of believers when we come together to retell the true story of the world. It reminds us that sin and death and Satan don't have the last word. But if you are here this morning and you've never turned away from your sin and put your trust in Jesus to be forgiven, you need to know that there is an expiration date on God's offer of mercy. It is not infinite and unending. That expiration date is when either you die or Christ returns. And friends, you don't know if that's going to be today or whether that's going to be another 50 or 60 years from now. You don't know. And you are not guaranteed that time. No matter how bad you think your sins are, if you come to God through Jesus, He is not going to smash you. He's not going to say, I can't believe what an idiot you've been, and I guess I'll forgive you. He will say, son for you. I am merciful and gracious and overflowing with forgiveness. It would be my joy to forgive you and to adopt you into my family and call you my son or my daughter. If that's you this morning, what are you waiting for? God loves being merciful. Today is the day where you can experience the joy that comes from knowing All of my sins, no matter how awful and unspeakable they might be, are covered because of what Jesus has done. Why would you wait another day? Is your sin so sweet that it is worth an eternity separated from God forever experiencing His wrath? Make today the day that you experience the overwhelming mercy and grace And for those of us who already know Jesus Christ, God is calling us today to live lives that are marked by a pattern of seeing who God is in the Bible and confessing our sins to him. God is calling us to remember the true story of the world that we are living in so we are rooted in the past and oriented for the present. But he is also stirring in us hope for the future, for the day. When Jesus Christ consummates all of his promises in a new creation where we will be God's people in God's place, in God's presence. Three times in the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, the Apostle John writes about Jesus that he says, I am coming soon. And after the third time John writes that, He responds, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And that should be the cry of our hearts.